now. Okay, hi, we are back with 262 Talks. We have a special episode today. We are hosting a forum for the state superintendent uh, primary that's gonna be happening on, what was it, February 19th, 18th? 18th? 16th, there you go, sorry. Um, we are very excited to have everybody on. Um, before I introduce everybody, we're just going to quickly go through the rules of the forum. Um, we have structured this in a very specific way so everybody has equal amount of time to speak. Um, so the rules for the forum is each candidate has two minutes to answer each question. Uh, candidates will not talk over anyone and, or interrupt anyone while they are currently speaking. Doing so will result in being muted by the moderator, which I am very quick on doing that. You guys can ask Kyle Flood. Um, if any of the candidates uh, mention another candidate or their record, the candidate mentioned will get will receive one minute to respond, and me and Hope will both be uh, keeping track of that. Um, and the moderators have the right to ask follow-up questions based on the candidate's answers. Um, so with us, we have Deborah Kerr. You want to say hi? Hello, everybody. Good okay. to see you. Um, we've got uh, Steve. Uh, I'm sorry if I'm going to mispronounce your last name. Uh, Krill? Krull. Krull. I'm so sorry. P people How's mispronounce my last name all the time. <laughs> uh, we've got Tony Gunderson. Troy Gunderson. Hi, everybody. Troy Gun Sorry. <laughs> I'm, I, yeah, I'm sorry. Um, and then we got uh, Shandalyn Hendricks-Williams. Good morning, everyone. And then we've got myself, Daniel, and Hope. We are going to be moderating this event. Hi. So if we don't have any questions by any of the candidates, we are going to get started. And Hope is going to take the first question. Okay. Any questions before we get started? No? All right. Sounds good. Let's begin. Um, Deborah, let's start with you for the first question. Why are you running for state superintendent for Wisconsin and what makes you the most qualified to serve students in our public schools? You have two minutes. Thank you, Hope. Um, I'm so excited to run for Wisconsin State Superintendent of Public Instruction. I've dedicated the last 40 years of my life to education. I've been a state superintendent in this great state of Wisconsin for the last 20 years. Most recently, Brown Deer School District, one of the most diverse school districts in the state of Wisconsin. I have a great track record of closing achievement gap, raising achievement, making sure all of our kids graduate at 100% walking across the stage. I've been an award-winning principal, a teacher, a state championship basketball coach, an athletic director, uh, an adjunct faculty member teaching aspiring teachers. And I believe because of my state and national experience as elected president, um, I've got the most um, experience in lobbying and changing policy and working with our legislators at the state in Madison and our Congress people in Wisconsin on both sides of the aisle. And the other reason I'm, I'm running is because our kids and teachers and families are not winning right now in Wisconsin. In fact, we need to get back to school safely and sensibly. And I'm the only candidate who has proposed a, a statewide re-entry uh, program to get us going. We have the largest achievement gaps in the country for the last 10 years between black and white students. This has got to change. We need to create a world-class education system that helps all kids, each child, to be a winner. Thank you. All right, thank you. Thank you, Deborah. Um, Troy, same question. Why are you running for state superintendent of Wisconsin and what makes you the most qualified to serve students in our public schools? 
Well, again, to echo what Deb said, thank you for the both of you for running this cool event. And I say I'm excited to be here. Um, I grew up in a little town in northern Wisconsin called Colfax. Uh, thousand people in town. I graduated with 50 other people and I've spent the last 35 years in public education, including the last 12 as a school superintendent. Um, my mother's a teacher, my wife's a teacher, literally everything that I own and have and all the opportunities that I've been afforded in my lifetime are connected to public education. I just think I'm one of the most fortunate people I know. And so my parents raised me to be the kind of person who got involved to help others. And it's time to step up. And if we, like, if we don't like what we see, we should get involved. And so I think it's time for the state of Wisconsin to come together. And I think out of the candidate, all of the candidates, what separates me is the ability to unify the entire state. I know people in all four corners after my 35 years working in this state, I've made connections that I think can bring us together. And once we begin to focus the issues on what's good for all of us, then we can start to move the needle for each one of us. And I just think that it's time for Wisconsin to um, come together in that. And I tell the story of being in Northern Wisconsin with a superintendent, a little bitty town who just, you know, all the questions we had about serving his kids and what we can do in Madison to help small schools. And then he asked me, how are we gonna address these racial achievement gaps, whether it's African-American children or indigenous children? And I said, you know, it's gonna be one of those things where we work together and we started talking about policy initiatives. And he just looked at me and he said, you know, what's gonna happen is whatever happens, you can count on me to help. And I just think that whole notion of the person in rural Wisconsin helping someone in urban Wisconsin, people in urban Wisconsin helping some of our mid-side cities. I think we can pull together and really do a good job. And I think that's what separates me. I got in this race because I think Wisconsin can be better. I think Deb's right in that, in that, you know, the achievement gaps, the opportunity gaps, the racial achievement gaps, you know, these things are just not tolerable. It's not, there's no excuse for that. I used to tell people in West Salem, we have no excuse for being the best. And Wisconsin, we really don't have any excuse for being the, not being the best either. And until and unless we're willing to work together from Superior to Racine, it isn't going to happen. And so I'm in this race to bring Wisconsin together and then move Wisconsin forward. So thanks for having me today. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Shandalyn, same question to you. Why are you running for state superintendent of Wisconsin and what makes you the most qualified to serve our students in public schools? I thank you for this opportunity and thank you to young people for doing this. So I have a common educational experience with all the candidates as it relates to degrees earned and licenses held. I have an uncommon career trajectory in that I started off at the bottom as a handicapped child assistant. I've worked as a paraprofessional, special education teacher, assistant principal, principal, central office administrator, district administrator, adjunct faculty, regional director, assistant director, and director at the DPI. And I was appointed by the governor to work at the executive level of the state. I am the only candidate that went from depending on the state to raise my two children on welfare to working at the executive level of a state. That happened through education. I know firsthand what a difference education makes in the lives of people. Further, we talk about equity. We talk about inequity. I have lived in inequity and I know exactly based on my experience what it's going to take to have equity and what equity looks like. Equity looks like me, the first black candidate to appear on the ballot for Wisconsin State Superintendent. We need to have more 
people of color sitting on the ballot. And the only way we're going to do that is if we get rid of the achievement gaps, if we truly equitably fund our educational systems, and if we remove all barriers, whether intentional or unintended consequences, because they both hurt just as much. I am the only candidate that will be able to do this, not just because of my education and my experience, but because my unique disposition and my commitment to all children, not just certain children. Thank you. Um, finally, Steve, same question. Why are you running for state superintendent of Wisconsin and what makes you most qualified to serve students in our public schools? You have two minutes. Yeah, thank you, Hope and Daniel, for uh, doing this event. It's super cool. You know, I, I'm running because I believe we need change. Uh, what we've been doing just hasn't been working. Uh, you know, we've got a, a middle class that's quickly disintegrating in our country. And, you know, if you look at some of the statistics, we can see that millennials right now are earning way less than baby boomers did in the same amount of age, along with having far more tuition debt um, because tuitions are up, right? So student loan debt is up. And, you know, housing costs are up. So like the main factor for being able to, you know, join the middle class and create equity um, are being thwarted by student loan debt, high costs and really low incomes. Now, I believe that part of the problem is education. Um, we've got a system in Wisconsin that's broken. Uh, right now we've got a teacher shortage in the thousands. We just can't find people to enter the classroom, right? And we've also got classes that are much different. You know, some kids are in classrooms of 45 while others are in 15. And you just can't have the same opportunities, you know, with that much disparity. And so really what I think it comes down to is a funding problem. And I really want to make some major changes to our system so we really can um, provide the best opportunities and ensure that every kid has a chance that they deserve. Now, my background quickly, I taught in the military. Um, I was a training manager there, training manager manager there as well, excuse me. I was a substitute teacher, a teacher in middle school and elementary. I was an academic coach and assistant principal and a principal. I've had very good success at systemic change, both in the military and in my current role as principal. And really the top-down approach of the past 30 years hasn't worked. We went from being one of the best in the country for education to slipping to near one of the worst, I mean, at least halfway there. And so what I wanna say is we need change. We need to move the needle in a different direction. And I believe the fact that I'm on the ground as a principal, that I have a unique perspective to get us there. Thank you. Thank you. All right, um, I'm going to uh, start uh, ask the second question. Um, and I'm going to have us start with Troy on this one. So over the past year, there has been a lot of controversy concerning schools being open or closed in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. In Kenosha, a teacher's husband died after contracting COVID-19 from, uh, from her who had caught it in the school building. Many parents have also argued for the right to, uh, right to choice when it comes to their children's education. What do you believe is the best approach to uh, both keep families and, uh, families and staff safe and still de deliver high quality education to all students? You have two minutes. Well, thank you for that uh, great question. Um, COVID-19 has been a, an un 
unparalleled or uh, unprecedented event. And folks really didn't have any idea how to navigate that to start with. And of course, the state of Wisconsin suffered from a dearth of leadership in Madison between the governor and the people in the assembly and the Senate fighting over who's in charge and then actually ending up nobody doing anything. The, the Senate and the assembly didn't meet for eight months. Uh, the only thing they did was tell everybody that the government, governor didn't get to decide. On the western side of the state, we look across the Mississippi River and we see was Minnesota with an education department and a governor offering rubrics and control items and expectations for each county. Again, they changed them as they went because they didn't know what they were doing to start with, just putting the data together. But they provided guidance, they provided choices, they provided expectations and leadership. And in Wisconsin, we didn't have any of that. And so I think step one is you gotta be willing to step up and lead. And by the time school starts, when, whenever, whoever wins this race is gonna be sworn in in July. And I've always said the DPI should be collecting data and I know they are doing that. They're surveying people, collecting data nationally and using all of our people across the state from our CESAs and they're called Cooperative Education Service Agencies. There's 12 of them around the state. They should come together and say, in our part of the state, here's what this data looks like and here's how we move forward. So that on, when school starts in the fall, we are prepared to open on a consistent basis, um, be, um, offer protections to our employees, offer assurances to our communities that we are getting this right and that we are safe. We should have enough data to be able to figure out how to keep people safe and also to be addressing the academic gaps and social emotional gaps and, and consequences of this um, COVID-19. I mean, on your employees who have been stranded at home, families who've been stranded at home, teachers who have been worried sick about getting sick and, and making their spouse sick. And of course, the example in Racine is the, there's a handful of those across the state where people have gotten sick and passed away. I mean, that's what happens in a pandemic and how do we keep kids safe and people safe? So I think the DPI's role in this is leadership, being able to form that. And when we start with school, we should have some sort of rubric and expectation that we're delivering and that we stand behind so that each school district has something to, to stand on. What happened in the last eight months is 420 school superintendents and 420 school boards were left to hang out to dry. So thanks for that question. And I just think the answer is leadership from Madison. Um, and a real quick follow-up question. Um, do you believe that uh, leadership in uh, when it comes to education in Wisconsin should be actively working with uh, organizations like teachers unions when they voice concerns about going back to school um, because that was an issue that uh, is uh, very close to home here in Kenosha where the teachers unions uh, protested against going back to school earlier in the fall and they their calls were ignored. Well, absolutely, because the issue the issue of how, how do you divide or develop some sort of protocol if you aren't asking the tens of thousands of people who are actually doing this work, what the work is. Um, my wife is a retired teacher and this fall she got hired to replace someone who had a baby. So every day she would come home and say, you know, the kids were either there or they were remote. How are we gonna keep people safe? She'd been doing this for 35 years and she knew. She said, well, they should do this, this, and this. I mean, these folks know what they're doing. You gotta be able to take that input because they're the ones closest to that decision. So to, to have a statewide discussion about how to bring people back without involving teachers, right? It's just ludicrous. That doesn't make any sense at all. So they need to be at the table, absolutely. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. um, so now, uh, Shandalyn, I'm gonna ask you the same question, but I'm going to paraphrase it so I don't have to read the paragraph for you again. Um, what it would be your plan to uh, in, uh, assure that we have high quality education while still keeping uh, parents, students, and staff safe? Okay, so first and foremost, I send my deepest condolences 
to that educator who passed away. I remember uh, when I worked at the office of the governor and we began to see um, people depart this world due to the COVID-19. And overwhelmingly, there was a large disproportionate number of people who lived in Milwaukee and people of color. And that's because of the dense population of Milwaukee. The virus spread more because people lived closer in proximity to one another. Um, they lived in more apartment buildings. The houses in Milwaukee are closer to each other. Just there are a lot of reasons why Milwaukee became a place that was fertile for this virus to run around rapidly and snatch away lives. Recently, there has been a proposal made by our legislatures to have school boards hold the authority to decide to open schools with a two-thirds vote. I do think that from our legislative branch of government, they are stepping up. What I fear is that we absolutely need to have conversations with educators and parents. I entered the field of education as a parent, and I'm thinking about the mom of that child who has had a kidney transplant, and they take medication to suppress their immune system. No one has the right to tell a parent that you must send your medically fragile child back right now when we don't have this disease under control. We need to follow the science. And according to my Bill of Rights, parents and children should have the right to receive instruction in multiple modalities, face-to-face, -face, blended, and virtual. And so we need to continue to figure out how to do that so that we preserve the life of our medically fragile students, our medically fragile teachers, and we need to have a COVID checklist to ensure that all districts receive their PPE and other equipment equitably, because right now, districts don't receive things equitably. So before we talk about having conversations, we need to make sure that everything that's needed is in every school and every zip code, and then follow that checklist. And other districts may open quicker than other ones because of the, reason, the reasons I just mentioned. But it takes a collaborative effort. That is your two minutes. Thank you. I, I do have a quick follow up for you, though. Um, and we'll give you one minute really quick to answer uh, to try to give a brief answer. Um, we have seen over the course of the past uh, year with COVID that disproportionately lower income communities are affected worse by COVID-19. Um, what would be something that would uh, that would you you would do? to try to assist these communities where their schools are underfunded and potentially don't have the resources to um, be safe and as um, for their students and uh, staff? So I can't answer that in one minute, but this is what I'll say. I will fight with the legislature to eliminate our antiquated funding formulas. And I would fight for weighted funding to go to schools that serve students who live in poverty, students with English language learners, and students with disabilities as a result of the Supreme Court decision in the case Vincent versus Voigt and follow the recommendations by the Association for Equity Funding. Okay, thank you. All right, so Steve, we are going to move to you. I'm going to be asking you the same question. How would you ensure the safety of our students, staff, and families um, and still keep the quality education um, here in Wisconsin. Sure, uh, you know, COVID-19, it's tragic. And yeah, I, I feel um, for the, the losses across our state. And 
Really though, what I, I wanna say about COVID-19 on a, on a different way is it really spotlighted, you know, the, the problems facing our education system. You know, we could have managed this a whole lot better if we had, um, you know, proper ventilation in our schools, not systems from the 60s, right? Or if we had class sizes that could, you know, allow for social distancing and physical distancing. If the schools had the funding to be able to get um, PPE and other types of safety measures. So, you know, it, it's gonna be shame on us if we don't change the system to prepare for the next time, right? Because this is gonna happen again, you know, within a hundred years for sure. And so we've got to make sure that, that we have a system set up and redesigned that will not only address you know, what happened with the pandemic, but also ensures that every child has what they need to be successful in school. And I think those things fall hand in hand. And you know, that, that means we need to turn away from the neglect that the schools have gotten for years. It means that we need to ensure that schools are properly funded um, in an equal and equitable way so that no matter where you live or where you move to, you're gonna have a wonderful school there waiting for you. And one that will allow us to manage the COVID-19 crisis or a future type of uh, a pandemic. So really it comes down to structural changes because what we've been doing hasn't worked. So we need to change it and thank you. Cool, and I'm gonna ask you the same follow-up that I asked Troy. How will you work with the uh, teachers unions across um, Wisconsin to help uh, address their concerns or listen to their concerns when they voice them? Right, and so this goes to what I was saying where we had the proper systems in place. You know, teachers wouldn't be protesting because they would have, um, they would have the safety measures in place to be successful. You know, what happened already is done. We can't go back and say, you know, hindsight should have done this, should have done this, should have done this. What we need to do is instead of setting ourselves up and continuing down this path, rebuilding our system. So then we don't have teachers unions who are protesting because they will have the PPE they need. They'll have the ventilation system that's good, you know, and they will have the, the, the smaller class sizes that prevent um, the spread of COVID or other types of uh, viruses. Okay, thank you. All right, now Deborah, same question for you. How are you going to um, effectively uh, guarantee, like you know, help uh, with the safety and uh, health for our students, staff, and families? Well, first of all, I want to just give a shout out uh, to the heroic efforts of all superintendents, district leaders, school board members who have shouldered the burden of this pandemic. And there has tremendous lack of leadership at all levels. Um, and But these people have been working on this collective project since last March. So I can't think of a time in my history of being an educator that we were able to work on a project collectively on something that was so important to us getting back into the school. Because a year ago, we would have never thought that a pandemic could have shut us down like this. So last March, within a week, our parents became teachers. Our teachers became students trying to learn all the technology and how to deal in this new virtual world. And then all of us working in the school district became social workers, making sure our kids were fed, making sure that everybody had a tech device and hotspots. And we knew that there's many inequities before the pandemic, but they really were exacerbated by this pandemic. And so 
I believe we are at a crisis point in our public schools right now. Our statewide data shows that we have declining enrollments across the entire state. We have four and five-year-old kindergarten students who have not even shown up in our schools. They are out there, but we don't know where they are. They're lost. And so this is very critical to our overall success. Our teachers are burning out. There's a teacher shortage and parents are fatigued. They're desperately wanting to get our kids back in school. So what we've learned so far, we've been learning things every day about this pandemic and about COVID-19. It's here to stay. It's not going anywhere. And so what can we do to lower the risk and mitigate the spread of the disease? And like the rest, this has been so heartbreaking to experience loss of loved ones, loss of colleagues, loss of our parents um, and, and other folks to this pandemic. It's, it's hit everybody in one way, uh, shape or another, but it's time to get our kids back to school. The research is showing that schools are not spread, spreading the disease. And so that's really important for us to think about. And if our teachers and our staff have everything that they need to be successful, they can protect themselves and also social distance and wear the PPE. Thank you. And then I'm, I'm going to ask you the same uh, follow-up question that I asked Chandelin. Um, The lower income communities um, all across Wisconsin are the ones that are hit the most, and they're the ones that are in desperate need of the funding for, um, you know, PPE and uh, other things. How are you going to guarantee that they are going to get their uh, support that they need to make sure that the underfunded communities aren't getting hit, you know, doubly as hard? Well, they already are. Um, the disadvantaged, the marginalized, the most vulnerable of our students, they have been significantly impacted by this pandemic. They were impacted before and will continue in our recovery. And so what we need to do, I'm going to use my federal and national network to um, lobby the, um, the Congress people to get more funding to support our schools at the state level. Because if we can get more federal funding, it'll free up state funding to support just what our kids need. Every district's a little bit different, but these kids need our support, whether it's social emotional learning, mental health issues, recovering from this trauma. A lot of our kids had no way, and our teachers had no way to bring closure to last year. And then now we're trying to deal with trying to get back to school. Everybody wants to get back to school in one way, shape or other. And I agree with Shandlin in that our parents need choices and so do our teachers need choices. If they feel that they can come back uh, to, to work safely, then let's let them do that. Uh, okay, thank you. Um, so it's uh, you're up. All right, moving on to the next question. Um, I'd like to start with Steve for this one. Um, you'll have two minutes to answer this question. Issues of racism and inequality are prevalent in our public schools, especially in Kenosha at the moment. What ideas do you have to diversify our public school workforce, expand curriculum on racism and non-white history, and eliminate the achievement gap between white and non-white students? You'll have two minutes. Yeah, thank you. I, I think that this is a two-part issue um, and we can tackle it in two ways. The first is that we need to look at what's happening on the ground with the teachers and the students and make sure that you know the, there's proper training and everything. Um, we've done a great job at the building that I run of having culturally and linguistically appropriate types of material, uh, anti-racism within our curriculum. 
And, you know, kids really now feel uh, physically, socially, and emotionally uh, safe to learn. And really, that's, that's what we need across our whole state. Because, you know, and, and it's not just with racism, it's also with trauma and, and other types of uh, mental health issues that are out there, is that if kids do not feel, you know, socially, emotionally, and, and physically safe to learn, they're not going to care about math. They're not going to care about reading because they're focused on something else. So that's the first component is that we need to change the culture and within the buildings. And, you know, we, we have a model from the building that I run to do that statewide. The second part is money. I mean, you know, the wealthiest among us tend to have the best resources. And, you know, that, that really makes problems. We have a reverse equity system. And so really what we should be doing is ensuring there's equality across the state, but we should also then ensure that there's additional funding to, to mitigate some of the extra issues associated with poverty, or maybe help out the students that have a disability, or ensure that our English learners and our bilingual students have the supports they need to be successful. So it's really a two-part thing, what happens in the classroom, and then also with the funding. So thank you. Thank you, Steve. Um, Shandalyn, I'm going to ask you the same question next. Um, what ideas do you have to diversify our public school workforce, expand curriculum on racism and non-white history, and eliminate the achievement gap between white and non-white students? So I thank you so much for this question. When I served at the Department of Public Instruction, I developed the first statewide plan to diversify the teacher pipeline. That plan is at DPI. One of the first things I'm going to do is find it, dust it off, and implement it. But some of the strategies include um, expanding on our high school programs through Educator Risings and Future Teachers of America to encourage our high school students to become teachers, to work with our EPPs and our urban districts to make sure that the urban students who decide to go off to college and become teachers can go back to their urban areas and complete their student teaching with assistance with funding through a program that currently exists at DPI, wherein those teachers receive funding for transportation and for living expenses while they complete their clinical student teaching. In addition to that, I'm going to partner with historical black colleges and other minority serving institutions to make sure that when our students leave Wisconsin to go to those institutions, they come back and potentially have the ability to complete their clinical here. I'm also going to work to bring back some retirees and look into our current job force for people who are already working who may want to make teaching another field for them. But that is the plan that I am going to utilize to diversify our teacher pipeline. As it relates to curriculum, that is why parental involvement at the school is very important. We can no longer just have parents involved with fundraising and, and going to assemblies. They need to sit on curriculum decision committees so that they have a voice and make sure that the curriculum recognizes and celebrates the contributions of all people, all people of color, not just in the Wisconsin, but in the country. And finally, to tackle the achievement gap, I have developed my Bill of Rights for Wisconsin students. And I invite everyone to look at those because some students in Wisconsin are getting all 20 of those things and some students aren't. And that's the core issue. All students need to be afforded the same equitable, round, well-rounded education. And my Bill of Rights clearly articulates that. And coincidentally, it aligns to what the Wisconsin's constitution says that our students should be getting. Thank yeah. you. 
Um, Troy, we'll go to you next. Um, what ideas do you have to diversify our public school workforce, expand curriculum on racism and non-white history, and eliminate the achievement gap between white and non-white students? Well, first of all, the, uh, the employment issues that we come with, it's really very similar in rural Wisconsin as it is in urban Wisconsin. Um, neither one of them can find teachers. And I, and I think part of the issue or the major piece of the issue is first you have to figure out people who have come from there as Shandalyn just talked about, how do you grow your own within those specific spaces? And I think, I think uh, there's a, two pieces to this. One is that the tuition cost for this is way too expensive. Most teachers are first time, first generation college kids from their families and, and access to universities is very restrictive, especially to families that don't have college graduates in them already. And I think we can work with to be able to lower that tuition and then connect with the CISAs to be able to run some of the training within there and then also with their local school district. So um, people wouldn't even have to leave town to learn how to do that. So we've got people in mid-career as, as she pointed out to be able to make changes to find that new career and they can do that without leaving the community where they live and work by connecting to their CISA, connecting to their school district and doing some of the coursework online for less expense because we have to continue to watch and monitor and make sure that it's that reaching the teaching career is something that's affordable and doable across our state because the issues are the same everywhere. And then you're able to produce teachers who come from where they're going to work. And that sort of culturally responsive or culturally aware teaching where you are culturally aware of where you grew up or where you're from seems to move the needle a little farther that way. As far as statewide curriculum on this, I alluded to this earlier, the entire state of Wisconsin, I think needs to be into this game. This isn't someone else's problem. This is all of our problems. And I think the events of the last uh, 24 months, both nationally and in our state, have opened our eyes a little bit to that. And it's unfortunate that it's, it's taken that to do that because our record on race in this state, of course, is abhorrent. And I think we need to be able to step up and admit that and be able to move that needle so that we're all in. But I think of this is a statewide problem when I look or a statewide issue as I look at uh, you know Latino communities in rural Wisconsin, um, indigenous um, folks and in, as uh, across our state where they are there's um, tribes located near school districts. I think we've got to have a racial awareness across the entire state. And then as Shondalyn pointed out, we need to bake that into our curriculum so that children of all colors see I apologize, Troy, but that is, that is your time. Okay, all right. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Troy. And Shandalyn, since um, Troy did mention your name, would you like a minute to respond to his comments? Um, you know, I think he was pretty much validating what I say. And I think that no matter who the state superintendent is amongst my colleagues, we cannot just let these conversations be limited to our debates and while we're on the campaign trail. I call upon whomever, if it is not me who wins this, to really do what you say that you're going to do and really form relationships with those who are willing to work um, and get it done. Because you know, we, we've talked about things, a lot of things during this campaign and, and we've elevated things, but then afterwards things go silent and that's why our achievement gap persists. So I would just make a call out to all of us, no matter who wins this, to not only continue these conversations, but act and do something about it. Thank you for that. Thank you for your response. Deborah, finally to you for this question, what ideas do you have to diversify our public school workforce, expand curriculum on racism and non-white history, and eliminate the achievement gap between white and non-white students? First of all, one of the hallmarks of my leadership when I was the superintendent at Brown Deer School District was that it was very intentional on my part to hire a diverse work staff. Our kids need to see people 
who look like them. They need to see women and men like ourselves on this call tonight or today so that they can aspire to be the president, the state superintendent, or whoever they want to be. Research shows that our kids can relate better to those um, who are more aligned and look like them and in their cultural realm. So we will increase the diverse pipeline by making sure that we recruit people to get into that pipeline. So what we did at Brown Deer, I tapped um, the many shoulders of our paraprofessionals who uh, uh, were people of color. We made sure that they were able to do their student teaching and not quit their job in Brown Deer. So that's part of the problem. We have wonderful people who wanna get into the pipeline, but they can't afford to stop working and earn a living wage. I also will uh, put a bill uh, forward right away to get some of our re retirees back into the school system. Right now, there's a law that limits retirees and the amount of time that they can work in our schools. We are gonna need an all hands on deck to recover from this pandemic. The Grow Your Own programs are terrific. The educators rising groups are essential. Any creative ways we can do to work with our universities and technical schools will be essential. In terms of equity and racism, you know, this needs to be an everyday infusion of the values and virtues that respect all people and all cultures and all walks of life. In Brown Deer, we became one of the most rich, diverse communities and people celebrated diversity. And so we need to continue to do that. But we also, as the adults and also students in your group, we need to be able to speak our truth and call it out when people do not do those things and value others. So for example, I had a football team uh, that was playing another school and they called my black quarterback the N-word. I was upset. I went virtual with it. I demanded an apology and we got a new conference, athletic conference um, plan uh, that would address harassment and discrimination because we as the adults have to speak out and not let it happen. Thank you. And I talked about the achievement gap, but I can follow up later. Thank you. All right, um, moving on to the next question. I'm going to start with Shandalyn on this one. Um, uh, Kenosha schools have often made headlines for all of the wrong reasons. A previous lawsuit cost KUSD a lot of money and almost went to the United States Supreme Court when a trans student sued the district for violating their rights. To this day, KUSD has not passed a policy that gives full equal treatment to trans and non-binary students. What can be done at a state level to make LGBTQ plus students and staff feel safer in our schools? So the Wisconsin state statute, I believe is chapter 118, addresses bullying. And it states that every school district shall have a policy on bullying for students. And this includes students of color, religion, sexual orientation, gender identification. The DPI on its website, if you Google LGBTQTI, bullying policy, developed a model for school districts to adopt. And school districts were supposed to um, develop their own policy and come up with their plan for dealing with offenders. As state superintendent, I'm gonna draw attention to that. And I'm going to say this, I have a nephew who identifies as gay and he tried to commit suicide not once, but twice. I receive emails from parents who have children who are LGBTQTI, and they ask me, what am I gonna do? What I'm going to do is elevate 
the visibility that this is a problem in our Wisconsin students and hold our school districts accountable for not only developing, but turning in their plans to the DPI and seriously engage in conversations with all stakeholders about how this cannot continue to happen. It does not make sense that our students who we expect to learn and excel cannot even get beyond who they are because people are bullying them for who they are. And that will not be tolerated by me as Wisconsin State Superintendent. I've talked about my uncommon disposition and this is part of my life experiences that I bring in and that I'm very passionate about. Thank you. Um, I'm going to move to Steve now. Um, what, uh, well, what can be done on a state level to make LGBTQ plus students and staff feel safer in our schools? Absolutely. You know, I, I alluded to it a little bit earlier in which kids need to feel uh, physically, emotionally, and socially safe in our schools and to learn, right? And so this, this needs to apply to the whole state. And there is a law in place place that the anti-discrimination law DPI does have that um, on their website and everything and, and you know we need to ensure that you know if there are reports of this we need to investigate it and we need to use the full level of the law behind it to prevent this type of this type of bullying you know when I when I think about you know that the LGBTQ plus community like apparently suicide or considering suicide is like 40 percent and you know, like that's that's insane to me. And so we really need to be mindful, and we really need to enforce the law to the furthest extent. And if it means getting the AG on board, the Attorney General, um, or other folks to get the district, a district, a rogue district in line on this, then that's what we do. So, but I, I do think that kids need to feel physically, say, uh, emotionally, and socially safe to learn, and we're going to do that at the state level. Thank you. Thanks. And um, I actually uh, did think of a uh, follow-up question that I will give Shandalyn a chance to ask because I'm going to ask all of you guys. Um, now, one of the uh, biggest understandings that everybody has is that uh, teachers' biases one way or another are always supposed to be left at home and not brought to school. But um, you know, all of us know, of course, that that isn't always followed up on. So uh, what will you put in place that will assure that if a teacher is giving, uh, is treating his, uh, students unfairly or is giving certain preference toward uh, certain students because of their, um, because of their uh, sexual orientation or gender identity, what uh, policy will you put in place to assure that that is dealt with in a uh, meaningful uh, way? And that's to me. Yeah, sorry. I'm, I'm going to throw it back to Shandalyn after you to give her a chance sure. to answer that too. Sure. Yeah, thank you. You know, there, we already have systems in place for this. You know, I, I think about um, there, was a, there was a staff member who, you know, expressed their political views during a class. And, you know, we addressed that within the, within the policies of the district and within state law. There are already mechanisms that are in place to make sure that bullying doesn't happen, to make sure that discrimination doesn't happen. Now, the problem is, are districts following through with that? Are, is the leadership in the building really coming down on those who are violating the law and allowing that type of bullying? 
So this is where it goes back to the original question, what will we do at the state level? Well, if we need to investigate um, a building principal or you know, a staff member within there, then we're gonna do that. Because you know, those, those systems sometimes don't always work and we need to ensure that there's accountability and that they really do work. Uh, because you know, it's not right what's going on if someone is treating someone wrong. And you know, we do need schools that ensure that every child, again, I'm gonna say this a million times, feels physically, socially, and emotionally safe to learn in school. So thank you. Thank you. And before we move on, I am going to give Chandelin a chance to answer that follow-up question that I unfortunately didn't think of until after we had moved on. Um, so what will you do to help ensure that uh, potential, potential student uh, uh, teachers' uh, personal views and bias are left outside of the classroom when it comes to LGBTQ? When we live in a very diverse community, um, and people come to a come to a space like a school, and they bring their own um, historical thoughts to that building. Some of the time, they just don't know better. And so, what what I think is very important also is that representation matters, right? That's why you know it's easy for everyone to understand why it's important to have diversity of race and why it's important for children of color to experience teachers of color. The same thing applies to the population of LGBTQTI. We need to have more representation and we need to have professional development for teachers who come into the space with a certain bias to help them um, turn those biases around. But at the end of the day, if our most valuable and most precious persons in the building are are harmed by a teacher's beliefs and their behavior, they should be removed. Thank you. All right, um, so moving to Deborah, uh, what can be done at the state level to make LGBTQ plus students and staff feel safer in our schools? First of all, this is equity in action. Every student has the right to feel safe, supportive, and included in everything that goes on in the school. So what I did at Brown Deer, we created a character ed education program that involved the kids in determining what were the lessons going to be every week. And we became a state and national school of character because we had students and teachers teaching alongside themselves, elbow to elbow, about trust, acceptance, integrity, responsibility, even when no one is watching. So our students could have these conversations about these important issues. You know, this is a multifaceted um, issue, and we need to make sure that our kids feel safe, that they are in a, a community in their school, that they feel that they belong. And so we have to learn from our mistakes. You know, whatever the, the district did in Kenosha, I hope they've learned from that so that they can make better decisions moving forward. But it involves high quality staff development for all the educators, comprehensive policies that deal with harassment and bullying. Um, this inclusive community through character education, and then supporting the kids because we had several student groups in our schools that were LGBTQI. And I had teachers who felt comfortable that they could say, well, this is, this is what I, I believe and this is who I am and I wanna help support these students in this way. And so again, it's taking into consideration all of those things to make sure that we are inclusive because that's what our schools are supposed to be inclusive access, opportunity, um, places for all kids to learn and achieve their highest potential. 
Thank you. And I will uh, ask you the same follow-up question as before. Um, you know, what will you do to, uh, you know, put, uh, will you put anything in place to help assure that any teacher's bias uh, is left at the door so that students aren't negatively affected by it? Yeah, this is training. This involves, you know, a lot of this is not intentional, but we have to call it out when it does happen. We have to be brave and courageous and have policies in place. We have to have high quality training that helps teachers kind of process this work. You know, um, there's a lot that goes into this and teachers have committed their lives to teaching children because they wanna provide a service. And so we, might, we need to make sure that they have the tools and the resources to do it and do it well. And so the equity training that we have brings people to the table to talk about these very types of issues. And so we have to um, problem solve and go through some of these issues because it all impacts us emotionally in all the work that we do. And we wanna make sure our teachers are best prepared to support their kids navigating this life. All right, thank you. Uh, and Troy, um, what can be done at the state level to make LGBTQ plus students and staff feel safer in our schools? Well, this is one of those issues that really is the core of why you wanna get into a race like this is because it's just not right. I mean, who thinks that's right? If you think about all of the places in our society where people have struggles, built-in hurdles, systemic, whether it's racism or bias, all those kinds of things, the one place where we should be able to turn the tide is in a public school. When a child shows up, we should accept all of them. It's just completely intolerable. And so I think the leadership at the DPI is one of those things where we're forceful about that. It's, it's connected to the discussion we had in the previous question about how do you build a, a curriculum that that show that promotes inclusion around the state. Well, this is included in that. Everybody needs to be at the table. And I just think that the, from a DPI standpoint, it's all about leadership. It's all about expectations. As Steve pointed out, you, this, the person in the DPI isn't gonna be disciplined or removing people who fail at their job or correcting them on, on site. But I think built into that is that what we can do is develop that cultural piece. We talked about it when we talked about how to serve our teachers. I think we need to work on from a statewide expectation of what school culture looks like. And that's connected to your CSAs, training up your school districts to be able to do that so that we are communicating, just like we did with um, educator effectiveness, where we start to expand a statewide expectation for employees. We talk about how do you correct that? What are the expectations? How do you deliver that training so that people aren't that, so that we're all in line doing that and that there's common language around what that expectation is. I, I just think it boils down to in our state, we have been so poor at welcoming or accepting people who are different. And it's time for that to stop. It just really is. And I just think now's the time to capitalize on the energy around that and really move the needle in our state. All right, thank you. And I will ask you the same follow-up question as I have been asking before. Um, how will you guarantee uh, that teachers' biases are left at the door and that, you know, students aren't treated unfairly for their uh, identity and stuff. Uh, again, I think that's about, about leadership. We need to remember that human beings are biased. <laughs> this notion that you are going to walk around and be unbiased is, is almost laughable. I mean, you have to be intentional in that. And that's part of your commitment to serving in a public school. You should feel joy in being able to be exposed to different cultures and different um, ideas and categories of people so that you can expand your own horizons. And I guess from a DPI standpoint, it goes back to those building cultural development, 
aligning our CSAs so that they can deliver that instruction culturally appropriate in their state. I'll tell you, CESA 11 in Turtle Lake is a lot different than CESA 1 in, in Pewaukee in terms of how they interact with the schools, the types of populations they see. So being able to deliver that on-site is important. So we want to work on school culture. We want to bake this into that. And I'll just end it again. It's time for Wisconsin. It's enough. We need to move past this and get better at it. Thank you very much. Okay, moving on to the next question. Um, I'd like to start with Shondalyn for this one. As a nonpartisan official, you will have more flexibility to work across the aisle in Madison. What ideas do you have to bring more money into our public schools and how would you work bipartisanly with the state legislator to make that happen? Thank you for that question. So I have recent experience working with the executive level and with the legislative level of our government, our governor and elected officials. As a bipartisan state superintendent, I possess the knowledge and the skills and the disposition to engage in conversations across the partisan lines about issues that are not a partisan issue and education is such an issue. As I mentioned before, I will work individually with elected officials to garner the funding that I need to implement my Bill of Rights for Students, as well as the other major issues on my platform. That includes eliminating our current um, property tax-based school funded formulas, increasing the levies, increasing weighted funding to go where it's needed most, lobbying with our federal elected officials, such as Gwendolyn Moore, to ensure that we get additional federal dollars for programs that are not currently funded fully like special education. So those are the things, some of the things that I'm going to do. More importantly, I believe that our elected officials want a leader that comes with a very articulated, clear plan that is measurable and that is observable. And that's what my Bill of Rights for Students is. Thank you. Um, Troy, we'll move to you next for the same question. What ideas do you have to bring more money into our public schools and how would you work bipartisanly with the state legislator to make it happen? I think it begins with a frame of reference and the frame of reference we all need to understand is that the people who make those decisions are the ones who get elected in the assembly and the Senate and the governor's office. And that the person who's, who's the state superintendent of public instruction is a leader and influencer and a, and a guider in that thing. You don't get to make the final decision. So it's all about relationships and developing those relationships and understanding where are these people coming from, depending upon where they get elected, who are they representing and what are their needs. I think on our side of the state, um, I'm, I'm um, endorsed by um, some of the most bipartisan legislators in our state and in the federal government, because we have the ability and we're, we're sort of the purple side over here. And so we have a real ability to work with both sides because you can't be, you can't be so firebrand on either end of this that you're gonna get um, anything done. We have to understand that. I think if you look at uh, the makeup of our state in terms of our elected officials, you have to be willing to listen. You know, you got two of these and one of these and sit down and be patient with them. But I, I think you have to have a plan of attack. So you lay out what your plan of attack is in terms of this is what we're gonna do with the money, more on per, per pupil, more into equalization aid to control property taxes. This is why we need it. This is why it's good for your district. This is why it's good for the whole state. And then you listen and listen and listen and move the needle one piece at a time. 
I've got a long history of being able to do that. I'm good at meeting with other people and doing that. I think that's going to be a strength of mine when I get to the Capitol. And so I just think we all need to remember what our jobs are. And lastly, I won't be afraid to look them in the eye and remind them that I got elected by the whole state. And so it's not a, it's not a imbalance of power. We are in this together and it's about moving the state forward. Again, all the way back to what I said at the start, it's about the whole state and moving, moving the whole state forward for our children. Thank you. Deborah, we'll move to you next. Um, what ideas do you have to bring more money into our public schools and how would you work bipartisanly with the state legislator to make it happen? Well, first of all, I've been a, um, a professor of school finance working with my um, former business manager at Cardinal Stitch University. So I understand the school funding formula and I've, I've filled out the revenue limit worksheet and I've, I've done it all. Uh, to how to set the levy and everything. So my expertise would help us move forward. So I've been interviewing um, other school finance leaders across the state. And part of the problem is we need to do an equity audit of how we're spending our money. I believe that we're leaving money on the table at the federal level in some way, shape or form. And I'm not sure that we're spending all of our money wisely from all the grants that we've received. So that would be my number one. The second all of all is partnerships. Um, I think is in critic, uh, critically important as we move forward that we need to look at our education foundations, our community associations who have significantly um, taken care of and rallied around all of our kids uh, during this pandemic. And they have some wonderful resources that we might not need to spend money on in our local schools. And that means like having clinicians come in and give um, mental health supporters or, or social work therapies, that kind of thing. The, the third part is my federal advocacy. I have a national network. We need to work with our Congress people from Wisconsin, but also E-rate, other associations to free up money so that we can have more money to spend on our um, students in our great state. So the way I'll work with people across uh, both sides of the aisle is number one, my campaign is the only bipartisan campaign with two business or two campaign managers from the left and the right, two fundraisers. I have retired superintendents. I have economists and strategists. I have school choice people on my campaign team to model that we can work together and unify around education. And so we have endorsements from people from both sides of the aisle. My teachers from Brown Deer have endorsed me for this job. And we will continue to look at the, our state as a whole and make sure that we serve every single child. Because if we are going to be champions of equity, we need to make sure every single child has a great education, that we have great teachers and our communities are supported along this way. Thank you. Um, finally, Steve, for the same question, what ideas do you have to bring more money into our public schools and how would you work bipartisanly with the state legislature to make it happen? So people want education. I mean, people want good schools. I mean, we've, we've gone to referendum in our state uh, over a thousand times in the past 10 years and the vast majority of those referendums, whether it's in a conservative area or a liberal area, have passed. That means that people care about schools. And I think that there's just a lot of miscommunication on really what is happening with school finance. The, the major disproportionalities between the rich, you know, like the rich resource schools and the poor resource schools. And I think as soon as we can bring that to the people and let them know that there's a lot of difference between this, that we, we can create a little pressure on that. I think also if we look at our 
uh, school finances, what we need is seed money. We need to influx money at first to produce great schools across our state because it, in the long run, if we have great schools in every corner of Wisconsin, it's gonna kind of pay for itself for the most part because you know, great schools we know lead to less crime. So we'll need less jails, less prisons, things like that. We know that leads to less teenage pregnancy, less uh, drug use, less alcoholism. So there's some medical conditions and social services there. We also know that it leads to higher achievement and uh, better jobs with more pay. And so that's less reliance on social services and more money. So if we can sell these ideas that actually investing in a proactive way is going to save us in the long run, I think that's a, a model that we can move forward with. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. All right. Um, so I'm going to get to our second to last question, and I'm going to start with Troy on this one. So yes or no, do you support state-funded private school vouchers? No. Uh, public education is our collective commitment to the common good, and vouchers make it a commodity. It weakens all of us. Um, we spend $350 million on that, and we're contributing to schools that are uh, lower quality to the ones that we have, and it weakens our collective commitment. So absolutely. Thank you. Um, and uh, Steve, I'm going to go to you next. Same question. Yes or no? Do you support state-funded private school vouchers? We get two minutes for this, or just a yes or no? You, 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 you get minutes. the full two minutes. Okay, <laughs> I know cool. this is kind of a shorter question compared to the rest of them, but. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, you know, I used to support it. Uh, when it when it was first brought out, you know, the idea that, you know, we can have a competitive uh, business model where, you know, the schools will compete against one another and that will increase efficiencies for all schools. But that just hasn't happened. You know, what instead has happened is a type of system that's more like sports competition, where you have one winner, a couple who are, you know, okay, and then a lot of people who aren't okay. That's what we're leading to. And as a matter of fact, you know, people expounded how much they like vouchers. There's a lot of failing voucher schools in Wisconsin, you know, and there's a, a bunch that somehow get away with not reporting their data. So, you know, there's some weird inequities within how public schools and how private schools are rated. And on top of that, you know, you wanna, you wanna think about inequities with vouchers. You know, Milwaukee Public Schools has about 18% of their student body who is, uh, special education, students with special needs, vouchers have roughly 1%. So 90% of school or 90% of special ed students roughly are in public schools. Yet vouchers are claiming that they have three percentage point higher achievement overall. Well, of course you do because you're, you're not taking the neediest kids. And so when they do, because there is a program for that, they get way more money than public schools get for it. So there's a major inequity in how we actually use vouchers, how they work. And to be quite honest, like doing research on it, I did my dissertation on school choice. You know, it's there, it's a system there to destroy public schools and in my view, and we need to eliminate it. We need to get rid of this bad idea that's been, I mean, public schools have been around for over a hundred years. Let's go back to what works. And if you wanna to go to a private school, find a scholarship or pay for it. That's what I say. All right, thank you. And uh, really quickly before we move on, uh, Troy, in case we weren't like clear, if you did want to continue on the question, it wasn't just a yes or no. I, I, I realized that the wording of the question might have been um, 
a little bit confusing that way. <laughs> well, thank you for that because it really is an important issue um, for us in Wisconsin, and I and I really I really do mean that. It public school is our collective commitment to each other, and when you create a voucher system, you create a commodity out of it. And I always use the example in this discussion: the budget here in West Salem is twenty million dollars to run our school, and we paid four hundred and fifty thousand dollars last year to three area private schools who are in no way, shape, or form as good as West Salem. No way, shape, not even close. And so if you think about that from a public tax policy, we collected money and we spent to, from our taxpayers to provide education, then we spent it at a lower quality place. The people who go there have a whole host of reasons why they'd want to go there, but we shouldn't be paying for that. That's their own choice because it weakens, again, our collective commitment because you allow people to peel off. It, it makes um, public education a commodity. And to follow up on the special ed piece of that, um, the public school is responsible for the evaluation. So we've spent the last two years evaluating just about every child over there uh, who, who at these private schools that our kids have gone to, I think in hopes of them hitting the lottery and having one or two of them identified because then they get more money. It's been frustrating. Um, it's been offensive. Um, it's just been a debilitating process. And again, it, it erodes the collective commitment. So I'm absolutely opposed to that. I think it's an attack on our public school system. And we need to make sure that we're pooling all of our tax resources to serving our public schools. And if someone wants to go to a private school, they should pay their own way. Thank you. All right. So I'm going to move to Deborah. Same question. Um, yes or no. Do you support state funded uh, private school vouchers? Why or why not? <laughs> Yes, I do. Um, a lot of people don't realize this, but the state superintendent is responsible for serving all kids in the state of Wisconsin. 90% of the students that attend our schools are in public schools, and I will continue to be the champion of public school uh, systems in our great state. The other 10% of the children attend these other schools, private voucher and charter schools. And so this has been an old battle. We got to get past this. All right, if we are gonna be champions of equity and that we are gonna um, care about families and students, we wanna make sure that all kids are learning and all kids are learning well. My vision is to create a world-class education system that is a model and example for all. And we will only do this by working together. So I want one system of accountability and transparency and equitable access. This is gonna involve a lot of stakeholders coming to the table that have never been asked to come to the table before. So I'm excited to do that and work with them side by side to figure out what do our kids need to be successful in Wisconsin. I'm not gonna fight about, uh, between sectors. This is a very, very old fight. So what I wanna do is I wanna create a stable landscape so that we can forge a better future for all kids. So I'm gonna uh, advocate forward, not backward, in an effort to make Wisconsin the best state ever. So I've been out across the state attending many Zoom meetings like my colleagues, but here's what I've heard from the people that vote. They want our education to succeed in Wisconsin. Number two, they are all taxpayers. And number three, they want all kids to win. And so until we focus on all kids, we will not be winning. And so I look forward to work with all parents, all staff, all students, all leaders to collectively have an impact to create a world-class education system in Wisconsin. Thank you. Thanks. And then last but not least, Shandalyn, um, same question for you. Yes or no, do you support state-funded uh, private school vouchers? Why or why not? 
Yes. From the beginning of this race, I have always said that I support a parent's child to enroll their, a parent's right to enroll their child in a high performance school. See, parents who enroll their children in Charter of Choice, they're taxpayers too. So they're paying into a system. They have a right to have that system pay for their child to go to high performance school. We talk about equity and everyone, every last one of these candidates know that a child's academic outcomes are dictated by, by their zip code. And in some zip codes, there are no high performing public schools, not to the fault of the, the school board, the superintendent, the district, the teachers or the principals, it's because they don't have the resources. So they can't have art, music, gym and Fayette. They can't have school social workers and psychologists. They can't have A1 facilities and basketball and extracurricular activities and Olympic sized pools. So a parent who is trying to make sure that their child has those opportunities has to look outside the public school system until we fix our funding formula, until we make sure that there's a high performing public school in every zip code, and until a student's outcome is not determined by their zip code, we need to be very careful about telling our parents to enroll their child in a poor performance school, because that's what you're saying when you take that alternative and that choice away from parents. And I've been in that place. My daughter did not get in, accepted into the three high-performing high schools here in Milwaukee, not because she wasn't smart enough, but because there were so many children applying. So I had to make another choice. And I'm saddened by that, but that's the reality. Every parent wants the best for their child, and they have a right to find the best school for their child, whether it's charter, choice, or public. And as state superintendent, I'm going to work to make sure that there are high-performance schools in every zip code so parents don't have to make that choice. Thank you. All right, we're going to move on to our final question for the forum. Um, for this one, I want to start with Deborah. Um, the final question is who should be leading the decision making for our public schools, students and parents, teachers and administrators, or taxpayers? We take the village. We all need to have a stake in making decisions. Everyone needs to have a voice. And what I've done through my campaign, I have asked all of these different stakeholders of the community. I have used a crowdsourcing app called Thought Exchange and people can type in what are the things that we should prioritize moving forward. I'm gonna take that statewide when I'm elected state superintendent because my passion is serving all. This is a calling. We, we need to work together to create this world-class education system. And my track record of closing achievement gaps, having the highest graduation rates for students of color, having a state and national school of uh, district of uh, character will help us lead the way. It's valuing people's input because we know whether it's parents, students, our teachers, our leaders, our school boards, our community businesses and partners, we all need to work together and the time is right. At this point in history, we have a chance to do things differently. Education has to be transformed. We can't go back to the old way of doing business. We have an opportunity now to do things better and bigger and become a world-class education system. Thank you. Thank you, Deborah. Troy, um, I'm gonna to move to you next. Who should be leading the decision-making for our public schools, students and parents, teachers and administrators or taxpayers? 
I believe, I, again, my, my, the primary reason I'm in this is because I think the entire state can come together in serving of all children. And, and if you're going to do that, you need everybody at the table. We all have a role to play in that. As parents, we need to, we need to have a role in being able to help guide the, the places where our children go to school. I, I think it's important that we have taxpayers involved because, again, we have a covenant with our taxpayers that people are participating in the collective um, commitment to the common good, raising the stakes for all children, they need to be at the table. What expectations do they have in return for that? What is their vision of the role for public education? And then you have experts involved in the table in terms of how best to serve children to move the needle forward for kids. So if you're gonna move, this is the, this is the first step in my students ready or uh, leaders ready to lead part of my platform is how do we engage all 12 CESA areas and all people across the state in developing a vision for moving the state forward. And I, when I think of that, I see us in a room with business leaders, parents, taxpayers, kids, teachers, administrators, all talking about what's the best for their area and then coming together to talk about what's the best for the state. We really are at a crossroads in our state. Is public education gonna be part of the solution moving forward or not? And if, we're, if we are to be part of the solution moving forward, we need everyone engaged. That's why I'm so adamantly in support of the notion of this is the collective good uh, commitment to the common good. We can't afford to let people peel off and stand on the sideline and not be engaged in public schools. It takes everyone. It's sort of an awkward way. We'd mentioned this last year and all of the referendums were running to fund our schools, which is another example of inequity, by the way. You, you bring more people into the discussion because you have to convince people as to why you're doing well. And, and that's been an eye opener for me. More people involved in giving input as to what the role, what our collective commitment to the common good is, improves public education and outcomes for all children. Thank you. Um, Shandalyn, I'd like to go to you next with this question. Who should be leading the decision-making for our public schools, students and parents, teachers and administrators, or taxpayers? So the fact of the matter is, parents are taxpayers, teachers are taxpayers, administrators are taxpayers, school board members are taxpayers, and some high school students who have jobs in their junior and senior year are taxpayers. So overwhelmingly, taxpayers should make the decision about what happens with the schools in the state of Wisconsin. And fortunately, the Wisconsin Constitution, unlike many of the other states, allows Wisconsin taxpayers to choose the state superintendent. In many other states, the, the, the state superintendent or the secretary of education is appointed by the governor. So overwhelmingly, Wisconsin and the history of Wisconsin agrees with that. I do believe that is a taxpayer's decision. I do believe that in high school, all of our students should have civics course. That's part of my Bill of Rights of Students so that they learn the importance of being a taxpayer, what the rights are for taxpayers and how to civically participate in decision-making such as who will be the next superintendent of their own children when they have children. Thank you. And finally, for Steve, who should be leading the decision making for our public schools, students and parents, teachers and administrators, or taxpayers? Yeah, I was going to kind of make the same point. You know, teachers, administrators, parents, some high school kids, we're all taxpayers. So, tax, calling someone a taxpayer is a strategy by those in power to try to separate us, make some people feel like they are better than others and they should have a better choice. We already have a system for how to make decisions. That's called democracy, right? We elect our local school board officials. 
they make the decisions then based off of the elections that they do. In the same way that one of us seven are going to be elected. I'm not going to sit here and lecture or whatever, but you know, it's essentially we have a system that works where residents are the ones who select the leaders and those leaders make the decisions for the schools um, with the superintendent, with the principals and so on and so forth. So it's the residents, the voters, those are the, the most important people because those are the ones that select the leaders who make those decisions. And so I think that we need to move away from this taxpayer idea because we're all taxpayers. If you ever bought a piece of gum, you're a taxpayer, you know? So I think we need to eliminate this us versus them mentality and go down to, hey, democracy works. Let's go back to it and let's try to stop this us versus them garbage. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Um, so then we just wanna finish out our um, this forum by giving everybody a chance really quick to just do a little closing statement uh, we'll give you guys all two minutes um, and then we will uh, round this out. So I'm just going to uh, work down the line, uh, you know, asking everybody to give their uh, final closing statements. Um, so we will start with uh, Shandalyn and then we'll just work down the line. Excellent. First of all, thank you all so much for this opportunity. You know, when we think about education and the history of education in the United States, once upon a time, everyone was not allowed the ability or afforded the opportunity for a formal education. And my grandparents being one, I come from the tribe of Cameroon from the shores of Africa, and we were bought here unwillingly. My great grandparents and my grandparents were sharecroppers. I'm the first generation college student. It's time that Wisconsin sets an example by electing me because I have demonstrated that no matter your history, no matter your race, no matter your social economical level, education is the way to have opportunities to do great things. When we talk about equity, there would be nothing higher nor more profound than for the state to say, let's try having the first elected state superintendent right the wrongs that we have historically engaged in and eliminate the racist practices, the unattended consequences, and create a forum where all of our children will receive the same education as clearly articulated in my Bill of Rights for Students. Because once again, it's supported by what is supposed to be happening in education in Wisconsin, according to our state constitution. Thank you so much again. And I look forward to serving as the next superintendent, state superintendent for Wisconsin's Department of Public Instruction. All right, thank you. Um, and now to you, Deborah, uh, closing statement. Thank you again, Dan, Daniel and Hope, and for all of your all the people watching today or listening in, thank you so much for this opportunity. Well, first of all, education is not a one size fits all. And the state needs someone with my leadership experience and the unique skills that have prepared me to get to this point. So I have had a passion for serving all kids for the past 41 years in all sectors of education. I've had experience at the local, state and national level to prepare me well for taking on this critically important role at a time when our kids are facing enormous learning losses 
especially our black and brown kids and those from underrepresented communities all across the state, rural, suburban, and urban. I, the, the state needs a leader like me because I have experience in addressing equity and closing achievement gaps. And I will also address the significant health and rising um, needs of all of our staff, students, parents, and community. I will also advocate for all financial resources at all levels to address the consequences of this pandemic. We are gonna be in recovery for many years. I'm the only candidate that has a bipartisan campaign willing to do the work, working with both sides of uh, the aisle from the state, national, and federal level. I'm the only candidate with senior leadership as a superintendent, as a teacher, as a teacher leader uh, compared to my colleagues. And I have ensured that my platform will address the inequities by making sure our kids are better at reading and math. And that's gonna require intensive support for excellence to raise achievement and equity to close achievement gaps. Our kids need to be able to read. That is a civil right. So I look forward to serving the state in my role as the next state superintendent as we create a world-class education system for all students, one that we'll be all very proud of and will be a model for others across the country. Thank you. Thank you, Deborah. Um, we're going to go to Troy now. Closing statement. Well, Danielle and Hope, again, thank you for putting us on. I'm so impressed. And as someone I've spent my entire career in schools and high schools, I just I just think kids your age are are the give me such hope for the future because you're engaged and you're positive and you're energetic. I feel good about where we're headed. Um, as I alluded to earlier, 35 years in this business, and I just think that it's time for me to give back. And I've created a platform of uh, leaders ready to lead where we can uh, bring the whole state together. And I guess all, all of the candidates, I think that's where my strength is going to lie. Uh, the second piece of that is students ready to learn. And I think we should be putting more money into the front end when children enter school, um, three-year-olds, four-year-olds, five-year-olds. I think schools can also be the place where we coordinate social services because these issues in urban and rural centers are just uh, dramatic. And I think we could better use our resources. I also think schools could get involved in the daycare game in terms of facilitating that, leading that in our communities, because there's a real crisis of places for kids to have daycare regardless of where you live. Teachers Ready to Teach is about finding the next ones, helping to make it easier to become a teacher, um, and, and also using a cultural approach to the state of Wisconsin to make the working environment for teachers something that allows them to have a positive and energetic career that's rewarding, where they can continue to serve and be effective in what they do. If we get that right, we're gonna produce future ready graduates, which I see as career college and, and life ready. I've been, I've been a big proponent of Wisconsin redefining ready movement. And I think that's where the accountability in our system should be. That's the line in the sand. What does that kid look like when we give him a diploma? I think there's ways to do that because I wanna be able to keep the covenant we have with the taxpayers about collecting the money and then in turn producing a superstar for Wisconsin who's career college and life ready. I'm just last, I, I've spent my entire life in public education and I'm running for the state superintendent of public instruction because I believe strongly in the collective commitment and the work that can be done by this entire state. There are good people all over this state. We've lost our way a little bit in our political fights and our divisions between watching national media and stereotyping people. And I just think it's time for all of us, someone who's 
owes their entire fortune and their entire life to the state of Wisconsin to give back, to open our arms and welcome people. And I think I'm the person best suited to do that because elections are about timing and today's my time. So thank you for having me on here. And thanks to the other three for showing up today. It's always fun to see you and to listen to your ideas. All right, thank you. And Steve, then going to you, closing statements. Thank you, Hope. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you to the other candidates and to everybody watching and listening. You know, something's got to change. What we've been doing just hasn't worked. Uh, if, if it did, we wouldn't have a teacher shortage. We wouldn't have the worst opportunity and achievement gap in the country. We wouldn't have tuitions out of control. I mean, we didn't talk about this, but you know, if we adjusted for inflation, 1940s tuition, it would be under $2,000 a year for tuition and fees. And you guys are paying what, 11, 12,000 right now? You know, if we can do it back then, there's no reason we can't do it today. And I believe that this is part of a larger battle. Um, now I'm focusing on education, but that whole individualist, I'm getting mine and no one else gets anything. Like that's the way that we've lived in our country since, you know, probably the 80s. You know, we really need to care, especially about kids right? Why is it that some kids get more opportunity than others? And that's going to perpetuate through generation and generation until we fix it. I'm sick of inaction. I'm sick of ivory tower solutions that don't work on the ground. I'm sick of these, you know, committees that sit down and come up with something that never gets implemented. We need change. We need action and we need it today. So thank you very much again for having us and have a wonderful day. Thank you. Um, all right, uh, Hope, do you have anything you want to say really quick? Yeah, I would just like to, um, first of all, thank all the candidates for coming out and for doing this with us today. It's been an amazing opportunity to speak to all of you. I'd also like to um, openly encourage all of our watchers and listeners to go out and vote in this election, February 16th for state superintendent of Wisconsin. It's really important in our community to pay attention to what's going on locally and statewide, federally, and make sure you get out and vote, make a decision. We can do this. <laughs> um, and I would just like to say again, you know, I, 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 as the founder of this group, I, I genuinely it means a lot to me that you guys took time out of your day to come and talk to us. Um, it genuinely is a heartwarming thing to me. Um, it means a lot. I had a lot of fun uh, listening to you guys. Um, and like Hope, I do encourage all of our listeners to do any research and all the research you can on all of the candidates and vote for if vote for the candidate that you uh, think is the one that you agree with most. Um, I want to just wish um, all of the candidates the best of luck. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, just check us out on Spotify, on Facebook, all of our social media. Um, this has been a special episode of the 262 Talks podcast. Um, thank you. Uh, and we're going to say uh, bye, ending the recording now. Bye.